just uh, an enjoyable day. Little did they know they're going to be massively attacked by the, the Japanese. The attack, though, by the Japanese was long in the works. A week and a half beforehand, November 26, 1941. This, so this was a Wednesday before Thanksgiving. The Japanese sent out a, a fleet of six aircraft carriers carrying more than 350 warplanes to Pearl Harbor. They were on a mission to deal a, a mortal blow to the U.S. fleet, uh, to the, the U.S. fleet in the Pacific. Two battleships also accompanied them, along with some other envoys. And uh, fortunately for the Japanese, there were, were clouds between Japan and Hawaii at that time, and they were under the cloud cover, unnoticed the, almost the entire journey. In fact, when they, they took off early in the morning, December 7th, it was under cloud cover that they, these planes took off. Squadrons of bombers and fight planes headed to Hawaii to carry out these attacks. And as the Japanese pilots descend upon Pearl Harbor, they were pleased with what they saw. If you've ever been to the USS Arizona there in, in Hawaii, they saw eight big battleships just lined up like sitting ducks. And I'm sure the Japanese pilots just grinned. <laughs> they, they delighted that. One writer said the Japanese pilots were, went then into a bombing frenzy, the American fleet. And just when the American, and as you know, there's big bombs. The USS Arizona was bombed so mightily that it just sent shockwaves. People on other ships were knocked off their ships, or almost knocked off, or something. It was, it was, it was such a big explosion, the USS Arizona. It, it tipped up like this and <laughs> went straight down the sea. Thousands of people died. And just when the Navy crews thought that the attack was done, they couldn't do any more, then the airfields and bases were slammed by bombs. Another fleet of Japanese planes came along. And army fighter planes parked in neat rows were smashed before any of them could take off. More than 2,400 people died in that attack. As actions brought us into World War II as our nation was enraged, President Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, appeared before the Congress the next day, delivered a speech in which he asked Congress to declare war on Japan, and he began the speech with these words. Yesterday, he said, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America suddenly, deliberately attacked by the naval air forces of the Empire of Japan. And ever since that day, December 7th has been a special place in the heart of many Americans. It reminded us how, how fragile our security is, how we need to unite together to fight for freedom, how we need to love our, our country of course, there's a, another event in the course of human history that we ought to remember as well. It didn't happen 67 years ago. It happened 2,000 years ago. And, and it's interesting that the, the, the parallels between what took place at uh, Pearl Harbor and took place at the cross of Christ are, are, are close. There are some of them. First of all, it's planned. When President Roosevelt addressed the Congress the day after the attack, he didn't know all the details, but he said this, it will be recorded that the distance from Hawaii to Japan makes it obvious the attack was deliberately planned for many days, even weeks beforehand. He said, during the intervening time, the Japanese government has deliberately sought to deceive the United States by false statements and expressions of hope for continual peace. A little bit like the Pharisees, who were peace with Jesus on the outside in some sense, and yet they were plotting an attack against him. 
The attack upon Jesus has been plotted for some time. In fact, a few days before He's crucified, there was a meeting of the chief priests and the elders, the people together, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and to kill Him. They found in Judas, the betrayer, who looked for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. And when the time came, they ambushed Jesus with a large crowd with swords and clubs. And Jesus says, have you come out to capture me like a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple, you didn't seize me. This has taken place. The Scriptures would be fulfilled. That's what Franklin Roosevelt was saying. You guys were, were feigning negotiations with us and then you attacked without saying anything. Also, it was unprovoked. Speaking with Congress, President Roosevelt described Pearl Harbor as an unprovoked and dastardly attack upon, by Japan. It also was the attack upon Jesus Christ. It was unprovoked and dastardly. You think about when they arrested Jesus, they brought him to hell an illegal trial in which they tried hard to find false witnesses, but they couldn't find any. Finally, when Jesus Himself said that someday you will see the Son of Man sitting on the clouds, the right hand of the power coming on the clouds of heaven, that they said, oh, look, He blasphemes. The little that He said. They sent Jesus off to Pilate to be crucified. And although Pilate found Him to be innocent, by sheer intimidation and political pressure was Jesus taken away to be crucified. It's totally unprovoked. On behalf. Jesus never did anything that ought to have merited such anger and hostility against them, but it was their sin when Jesus confronted that that sparked this nerve. And then the, the death upon the cross was terrible. It was a dastardly attack. Roman soldiers stripped Him. They mocked Him. They spit on Him. They beat His head. They nailed Him to the cross, lifted up to die. Even as He was dying, they were mocking Him. It was an unjust death. And like Pearl Harbor, the victims ultimately conquered in the cross of Christ. In World War II, of course, it was the bombs, the atom bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki that ended the war that caused the United States to have victory over Japan. And so likewise, Jesus, when He rose from the dead, it was His victory over the religious leaders. After He died, they laid Him in a tomb. as the Sabbath. The women were coming to anoint His body and they looked, they couldn't find it. The angel said, don't be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He's not here. He's risen from the dead. Just as He has said, go now and tell your disciples that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And He spent 40 days with His disciples teaching them about the kingdom of God, appearing more than 500 people. Then He ascended into heaven, sent the Spirit in the church. The church scattered and proclaimed the message of repentance for forgiveness. And, and that message reached us. The reason we're here today is because of what took place. 2,000 years ago, the reason we celebrate, we think about, we need to remember the events of Pearl Harbor is the uh, same reason we need to remember the things about Christ. It's important for us to remember these things. Well, my message last week was of the importance to remember. Peter said in verse 12, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. He says, I consider right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. I'll also be diligent that any time after my departure you'll be able to call these things to mind. He says, I'm going to remind you of these things. I'm going to remind you of these things. And just as we remember Pearl Harbor every December 7th, so ought we every Sunday, every day of our lives to remember the cross of Christ. And what's interesting is the parallel between Pearl Harbor and the cross continues on because the cross was a historical event every bit as much as Pearl Harbor was a historical event 
every bit as much as there were ships that were sunk and there were people that were killed, so also was there a real cross, there was a real hill, there was a real trial, there was a real Jesus nailed to a cross. In other words, listen, our faith is founded in the facts of history. It's grounded in the facts of history. See, we're not, we're not followers of some big idea. Okay? We're not celebrating or thinking about remembering in Pearl Harbor some idea of war. No, we're celebrating a war that took place. And see, we aren't followers of some idea that will help the world. We're not followers of a philosophy. We're not followers of some intriguing story. We're not followers of this code of conduct that will make us righteous. Rather, we're followers of a man who was born, lived, taught, died in space, time, and history. He was like no one else, of course. He was a God-man, Jesus, birth, born of a virgin. His life was a sinless life like no one else. His teaching was unbelievable, unbelievably awesome, <laughs> put it that way. Of course, it's believable. We believe it. He spoke the very words of God. His death was like no one else. His death was a substitutionary death and His resurrection was like no one else. He raised from the dead never to die again. You know, it's not that we don't have an idea to follow. Because we do. We follow the cross of Christ. It's where our boast is. It's not like we don't have a philosophy to follow because we do. We have a philosophy. We believe that a Savior died for us. It's not like we don't have a story. We have a story of Jesus who was the light and was hated by the darkness. And it's not like we don't have a code of conduct. We follow the royal law, which James says is the royal law of love. But all these things are grounded in history. They flow out of what took place at the cross. They're not made up. They're not accepted for some pragmatic reason as if they give people a better life. On the contrary, listen, we follow these things because they're true to history. Our faith is firm because it's grounded in the facts of history. And that's Peter's point in my message today. Verse 16, Peter says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to Him by the majestic glory, This is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. My message this morning is entitled, Our Firm Faith. In these words, Peter gives us three lines of reasoning of why it is that our faith is firm. First of all, our faith is firm because it's not a fairy tale. It's not a fairy tale. That's what verse 16 is talking about. We did not follow cleverly devised tales. We made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, our, our faith isn't some concocted story made up by some really smart people. Rather, our faith is grounded in the truth. Now, the Greek text here literally reads, we did not follow sophisticated myths. It's true. Our faith is true. As we gather each Sunday morning to worship the Lord, we're not following myths. We're not following fairy tales. Now, fairy tales have their place. All right? I'm not one of those who believe you shouldn't, you shouldn't teach fiction to kids. I know some people believe that. I'm not. Because I think fairy tales have their place. They're nice. They're delightful. They're fun. They're totally imaginary. And they teach us good lessons. I mean, think about the lessons that uh, we learned from Pinocchio. What's a good lesson you learned from Pinocchio? Not to lie. Exactly. You lie, your nose goes long, you get into trouble. How about the three little pigs? What do they teach us? Yeah, yeah, be careful. Exactly right. Huh? Work hard. 
building a strong foundation, right? Then the wolf won't come and blow your house down, right? Whichever you do, do it well. Do it with all your heart. How about Beauty and the Beast? What does that teach us? Yeah, look beneath the surface for true beauty. The gingerbread man. Run, run as fast as you can. You can't catch a man. The gingerbread man, well, the gingerbread man was caught. So you can't run forever. Realize there is a day of accounting. Little Red Riding Hood. Be careful of our friends. The Pied Piper. Don't believe everyone that comes along our paths. Stone Soup. Remember that one? People can be pretty gullible, right? The Wizard of Oz. There's no place like home. Despite the fanciful, imaginary world, there's no place like home. Cinderella gives us hope that we might live in a castle someday. Listen, but our faith isn't a fairy tale. It's grounded in reality. It's grounded in history. And that's Peter's point. We didn't follow cleverly devised tales. We known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are many people in the world who think that Christianity is a series of cleverly devised tales. Karl Marx said, religion is the opiate of the people. Lots of layers of meaning there, but opium, you know, is a, is a drug that's taken so as to escape life and so as to experience its happiness and joy, which, you know, gives you illusions. And Karl Marx was saying that people used religion to dull the pains of this world and to find real happiness in some other experience outside the world. This, he considered religion to be illusions, like opium, which causes you to hallucinate, I think. But Marx couldn't be more wrong about the Christian faith. The Christian faith is not an illusion. It's not a fairy trail. It is truth. It's grounded upon history. Now these words, you don't really realize this, or the original readers don't, but Peter's beginning to pave the way to respond to false teachers. As you know, 2 Peter is all about false teachers who are pulling people away from the truth. And Peter says, no, you need to know the truth, right? You need to be grounded in these things. You need to understand them. All of chapter 2 is going to be devoted to false teachers and half of, the first, half of chapter 3 is going to be devoted to false teachers. Right? Look at chapter 2, verse 1. False prophets also arose among the people. Just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. These false teachers are teaching false things. They're, they're teaching destructive heresies. They're not teaching the truth of history. They're distorting history, revising history, changing it, seat their own fancies and actually teaching lies, not straightforward about the truth. They're secretive about it. Listen, anytime someone's secretive about the truth, there's got an agenda going on. The one who's open and honest doesn't have an agenda. Now, as I've told you before, the chapter 2 is little about their teaching. All we learn from chapter 2 about their teaching is right here in the first verse. These destructive heresies, they deny Christ. But in chapter 3, we begin to get at least one sense of their um, other heresy that they have, their teaching. Look at chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. He says, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust. And these are the false teachers, saying, Where is the promise of His coming? Where is the promise of His coming? Is He really coming again? For ever since the beginning of creation, ever since the death of our fathers, what's it here? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it has been from the beginning of creation. The fathers fell asleep and it's always been the same. What was 
is and will be. They're denying the second coming of Christ. And doing so by saying it's always been the same. Right? Everything has not changed. There's nothing that's changed. There's no reason to anticipate His coming again because there's nothing in the past that gives us any reason to anticipate His coming again. As far as they were concerned, the return of Christ wasn't going to happen. It's a fairy tale. And that's the very point that Peter's making here in verse 16. We didn't follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you, and check it out, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we told you about the power of Christ. We told you about the coming of Christ. And at first glance, you might think Peter is talking about Christmas. Jesus came to earth. And if it was, it would be a great message for today, talking about Christmas. But I, I don't think that uh, Peter's here talking about Christmas. Okay? Now, it's true that Jesus came to earth. It's true that He was among us. It's true He was born of a virgin, sinless life. It's true He dies a ransom for our sins. But I don't think that Peter here is talking about the Incarnation. I think he's talking here about the, the second coming of Christ. And the reason I, I, I say that is because of this word translated coming. You know, if you know a little bit of Greek, if you know enough Greek to be dangerous, you've probably heard this word, parousia. How have you heard parousia before? Okay, a few of you have, okay? Uh, this is a, a word commonly used in the New Testament more than 15 times. It always refers to the second coming of Christ. The, the parousia, the being with us with Christ. It never refers to the first coming. And that's what Peter talks about here. And uh, we made known to you the power and the parousia of our Lord Jesus Christ. Probably the power and future coming of Christ. In fact, when Peter used this word in chapter 3, he used it in a future sense. Where is the promise of His coming? His coming, right? His future coming. He used it in chapter 3, verse 12. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Parousia day of God. Referencing His second coming. Now, it doesn't mean that this expression right here in verse 16 might be the only exception in the Bible. That's, that's true. But I think there are also some other clues here in Second Peter that causes reason to think that it's the second coming of Christ. The first is that, that Peter talks about Him coming in power. Now, when you think about the first coming of Christ, you can think about His power. I mean, His teaching was powerful. When you're dealing with the religious leaders, He dealt with power and boldness. He obviously possessed great healing power over demons and sickness. I mean, over nature, it's amazing. He could turn water into wine. He could calm the sea, meet, multiply fish to feed thousands, bread and fish to feed thousands. Certainly, as a measure, you might say his first coming is in power, but the power of his first coming pales in comparison with the power of his second coming. In fact, you compare those two things, and um, it makes. Um, makes a little candle look like an atomic explosion. When Peter speaks about the coming of Christ, he says in chapter 3, verse 10, heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. The earth and its works, poof, gone. The coming of Christ. He says at the coming of the day of God, the heavens will be destroyed by burning. Verse 12 and the elements will melt with intense heat. Think about um, what took place to really end World War II. It's the bombs dropped on Japan. I was reading about them. It's amazing that America was just testing them and just had tested them before they finally dropped the bombs in, uh, I think it was 1945, Chris, is that what you said? April 9th and April 
Am I dates right? April 6th on Hiroshima, April 9th on Nagasaki. Someone, uh, these bombs, they were dropped from the bombers. They exploded 2,000 feet above the ground. And as they exploded, the heat at the point of of detonation was hotter than the surface of the sun. And the fireball exploded out, emitted atomic radiation, searing heat. People close to ground zero were vaporized instantly. Thirteen square miles of landscape reduced to literal ashes. Hiroshima is about the size of Rockford, 100,000 people, I think. Reduced to ashes, 13 square miles. More than half of the buildings were destroyed. The immediate death toll approached 100,000 people. Just right like that. A resident of Hiroshima described the attack with these words. I don't know how. Maybe they were way out there and they saw it. But the person said this. It was as if the sun exploded. Shock waves and the repercussions of that. Listen. But with the coming of Christ, the sun will explode. That's what Peter says here in Second Peter chapter 3. The heavens will pass away with the roar. The earth and its works will be burned up. When I mean, you're talking about the power of the coming of Christ, the second coming... Is like an atomic bomb. The first coming is like a candle. When the Bible describes the first coming of Jesus, it describes it as the coming of a lamb, gentle, humble, prepared for slaughter, silent before his shears. When the Bible describes the second coming, it comes a lion, fierce and ferocious and prepared for victory. We think about Christmas. We think about a small baby born in a barn stall, meek and gentle of heart, willingly laying down his own life. And rightly so. When we think about his second coming, He'll come as a warrior on a white horse with his eyes a flame of fire with the armies of heaven following him and a sword coming out of his mouth that will strike down the nations. The second coming. The biggest reason I think he's talking here about the second coming of our our Lord is because of what follows here in verse 16. He says, We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. These verses are talking about the events that took place at the transfiguration of Jesus. And those who saw and heard the majestic glory, it was a a taste of the coming kingdom that was to come upon His return. These verses really form the basis of my second point this morning. Our faith is firm because it's not a fairy tale. Our faith is firm because it's based on eyewitnesses. Right? That's Peter's point. Look at verse 16. He says, We were eyewitnesses of His majesty. He saw Jesus in a way that few ever had opportunity to see Jesus. He saw Jesus receiving honor and glory from, the, from God the Father. He saw the glory of Christ having having His garments become radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer could whiten them. You look at the whitest garment here this morning. Someone wearing a a white garment. Some of you are. Whiter than any of those. No ring around the collar in this one. White, shining, like no launderer can shine them. He heard the honor given to Christ and the Father said, This is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Divine affirmation of the Father with the Son. 
And Peter not only was an eyewitness, he was also an ear witness because he heard that. We heard the utterance made from heaven when we were with them on the holy mountain. He saw Jesus with his own eyes. He heard the Father with his own ears. It's a tremendous thing that took place. In fact, I just want to read the event. Turn back in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. We could choose Matthew's account or Mark's account. They're all pretty much the same. But for the sake of choosing one, I've chosen Luke's text today. And I want to begin, actually, the verse before the transfiguration in verse 27. Jesus had just talked with His disciples about His upcoming death, talked about the high cost of following Him. If you want to save your life, you need to lose it. Then He says this, verse 26, Whoever is ashamed of Me and My words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of Him when He comes in His glory and the glory of the Father and of His holy angels. Don't be ashamed of my words. I'm going to come with the glory of the Father and with the holy angels. It's going to come someday. And then he says about his future coming, he says, but I say truthfully that there are some here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. You start thinking about that. You say, how is it? They... Last I checked, all the apostles died. In fact, I remember that all of them died a martyr's death except for John. He was exiled and he died of old age on the island of Patmos. And yet, Jesus here says that they will see the kingdom of God. See How they see the kingdom of God, how they taste it. And I think the clue is in the next section of Scripture. The transfiguration of Jesus is a taste of the coming kingdom of God. That's why Peter says, I made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I made known to you what it's like, what the kingdom of God will be like. And then verse 28, he says, some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. Here are four guys walking up the mountain. One was Jesus. He had a plan. The other three guys were pretty clueless. He said, okay, we're just going to go pray. And Jesus knew something bigger was on the agenda. And we find out what it was in verse 29. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. Strange thing happening to Jesus. Have you ever seen someone faint before? Right? What happens? They get like all pale first. And maybe as the disciples saw Jesus, He was getting pale. And they said, oh, maybe He's going to faint. But His paleness started, started changing and it started glowing. And His face started glowing and we can only assume that all His body started glowing and His skin, as it says here, was flashing and radiating light. Jesus brought olive color complexion there from the Middle East and now He was white, exceedingly white, so much that His garments were radiating light. They were radiating light because you can't hold back the, 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 the glory of His flesh that was shining through His garments. It's like a light bulb under a sheet. That the sheet becomes just white like no launderer can whiten them. Just, Jesus there is sitting there glowing. At first you might say, wow, what a strange thing. But, but realize what the strange thing is. The strange thing isn't that Jesus glowed then. The, the strange thing is that He didn't glow for the whole rest of His life. God in flesh. How is it that that was kept in? That's the amazing thing. The Bible tells us that God dwells in unapproachable light. When everyone in the, anyone in the Bible experiences God, they experience Him as, as glory, light, flashing, Peals of thunder, right? Revelation 4. Flashes of lightning from the throne. These, this light coming forth. And Jesus being God in the flesh ought to be blinding light like this all the time. How is it the glory and honor of Jesus was held inside skin? I don't know. But it was. That's the strange thing, actually. At this point, Peter and John, 
Peter, James, and John, able to see the unveiled glory of Christ. There's something else that took place here in verse 30. Behold, two men were walking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which is about to accomplish in Jerusalem. <laughs> what a gathering. Moses, the giver of the law. Elijah, perhaps the greatest of the prophets. And Jesus, the God-man himself, talking, having a conversation together. So I uh, studied and looked at uh, um, World War II. It was very fascinating to see that famous picture of the world rulers together. It was uh, Churchill and FDR and was it Stalin? All together. This is like, <laughs> these are like the religious heroes all together talking. Moses and Elijah and Jesus. And they're having this conversation. What a conversation it must have been. And they were talking about his departure. Literally, they're talking about his exodus. They're talking about the time when Jesus would leave the earth and return back to heaven where he was. They were talking about his upcoming crucifixion. Right? I love this fact that when they come down and when they have a chance to talk to Jesus, what are they talking about? They're talking about the cross of Christ. When their redemption would be accomplished there upon the cross in space, time, and history. That's what they were delighting in. That's what, they're, that's what they wanted to see, talk to Jesus about. Now, unfortunately, for Peter anyway, he and James and John had slept through much of their conversation. Darn, I missed that one. Verse 32 tells what took place. Now, Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with them. That this is Peter's point back in chapter 2. We were eyewitnesses of His majesty. We saw Jesus in all His glory. We're not making these things up. We saw Him with our own eyes, seeing His glory. And, and as these were leaving in verse 32, Peter said, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make for ourselves three tabernacles, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. I, I think Peter's point is he didn't want the time to end. Here he is with Moses and Elijah. He wanted to talk to these people. What's it like, Moses, to finally stand in the promised land? You died at Nebo overlooking the land, but now you're in the land. What's it like, Elijah, to be taken up by a whirlwind into heaven? What's it like to do these miracles that you did? Let's make these three tabernacles, right? Let, let's keep this party lasting a little bit longer. Let's make these tents. Let's have a camp out. And I imagine Moses and Elijah <laughs> um, Thinking about, you know what, I've got, this, I've got this place in heaven, which is maybe a little bit better than a tent down here. Um, no, thank you. I will go back there. Thank you very much. Couldn't spend the night there. Couldn't stay there. Couldn't remain there. This wasn't a permanent thing. This is just a taste of what the kingdom will be like. Verse 34 says, While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. So you got Moses and Elijah, who knows if they're totally depart from this time. This cloud is coming upon them. They enter this cloud and then they hear this voice, verse 35, coming out saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. What a fearful and yet wonderful sight this would have been. The cloud coming around them, it darkening a bit, and then them hearing this voice coming from heaven, affirming the Son now, in all the dis different gospel accounts, they all render it a little bit different. Luke said it here like this, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. Mark said it, This is my Beloved Son. Listen to Him. Matthew said, This is my Beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. There's no reason for concern that these sayings are different. What God said probably all these things. 
and maybe said some more things. God probably said, this is my beloved Son, my chosen One, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. There may have been some other things that weren't recorded for us. But that's what He said. And the spirit of communication, all the Gospel accounts is all the same. They weren't spoken for Jesus' sake, they were speaking for the disciples' sake, that they would see that God's hand of affirmation was on His Son. Jesus is the Messiah. This is the One who has approval. You need to listen to Him. You need to obey Jesus. And the account concludes here in verse 36. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silence, reported no one in those days of the things which they had seen. Matthew and Mark say that Jesus, as they were walking down the mountain, said, tell this vision to no one until the Son of Man raises from the dead. They're told by Jesus to be quiet about what's taking place here. And they didn't. But now Peter's writing post-resurrection. He said, let it be known. Let everyone know about the power and coming of Christ. And that's what he's doing back here in Second Peter chapter 2. So turn back there. Second Peter chapter 1, rather. So he's doing, he's letting it be known to everybody. And it is interesting here, is that Jesus, Peter had made this known to these scattered churches. It's not just in this letter that he's revealing that he saw Jesus on the mountain transfigured. No, he had already told them of this before. He said, we saw it, we have heard it. And we're telling it to you. We saw his glory shining like a light bulb. We, we heard the honor given him to by the Father. This is my beloved Son and we have reason to believe because of what we experienced in history, because we are eyewitnesses of this, that He is coming again. We've tasted the appetizer of the kingdom, and boy, it is good. Just wait till the full dinner comes. It's going to be much better. Well, the faith we have in Jesus Christ isn't some fairy tale. It's concocted in some closet someplace by some real smart guys. The faith that we have is firm because it's based upon eyewitnesses. But Peter gives a third line of reasoning here why our faith is firm. Our faith is firm because our faith is based on Scripture. Look at verse 19. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. As you look at the Greek text, I think the marginal reading of the New American Standard is better. The marginal reading says this, we have the even more sure prophetic word. The ESV follows suit in that, and the King James, the old King James, the authorized version, follows that suit. We have the even more sure prophetic word. See, it's, it's not that the transfiguration gives credibility to the Scriptures. That's not Peter's argument. Peter's argument is this. It says, yes, we're eyewitnesses. Yes, we're earwitnesses. But we have something even better than that. We have the Scriptures, which are even more sure. Our faith is firm because the Scriptures are sure. The word here is translated sure or certain. It's the same word that Peter used here in verse 10, where he says, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain or make sure about His calling and choosing you. And we can be sure of God's calling and choosing of us because we have a pure and sure Word of God. And just, just even as you think about how much more sure the prophetic Word is rather than the experiential Word. Think about when Jesus, in Luke chapter 16, He told the story about the rich man and Lazarus. And Lazarus was, and the rich man lived his life in, in wealth and Lazarus was a poor man. But in death, Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom and uh, the rich man went to Hades where he began to taste of how bad hell was. 
And he says, go back and warn and warn my, my brothers. And you say, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the sure Scriptures. Let them listen to them. No, someone rises from the dead to listen to them. And Jesus says this, no, even if someone rises from the dead, they won't believe. If they fail to believe Moses, they won't believe this. So the eyewitnesses are good, but better what we have is the Scripture. And that's what Peter is telling us here. Is that we have the more sure prophetic word. You know, there are certain documents that we find more trustworthy than others. Your shelf at home, perhaps you have a dictionary or encyclopedia. Those things are gone through. If encyclopedia is, you know, someday our kids are going to say, What's an encyclopedia? <laughs> I thought Google was an encyclopedia, is what they're going to say. But anyway, you got this encyclopedia out there, and, and it's gone through revision after revision after revision after revision, and checked over and checked over and updated. And, and you look at that, and you, you can pretty well trust what's in an encyclopedia. It contains the truth. For the most part, you can trust what's in the Rockford Register Star. They make errors from time to time. You might disagree with the opinions, but in terms of the factual information, there's lots of information there turned out on a daily basis. You can trust that because the writers there are trained to report the truth accurately. I mean, that's their job. That's what they're focused on. Though it's probably not as accurate as an encyclopedia, which is a time after time of revision, revision, many, much time. Then there's the Internet. You read something on the Internet, it's not quite as reliable because, listen, think about this. Anybody can say anything on the Internet. <laughs> so when you go to the Internet, you're just kind of like, uh, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not quite so sure about this one. Okay? And then the tabloids. <laughs> you can't trust anything said in those things. Well, there's a germ of truth, but normally, the truth be known, that's all there was. A germ of truth. Their aim is to sell stuff and to make money, get people to read that. But what Peter's saying here about the Bible is the Bible is a sure and trusted resource to guide us. More trusted, more sure than the tabloids, more sure than the internet, more sure than newspapers, more sure than dictionary, more sure than eyewitness accounts. We have the even more sure prophetic word. And then the warning comes here in verse 19, which comes to all of us, really an application to us today. Since our our faith is firm, it's not a fairy tale. And, And since our faith is based on eyewitness accounts, and since our faith is based upon Scripture, here it is. What do we need to do? We need to pay attention to the Scripture. You do well to pay attention to the Scripture to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Pay attention to it. Pay attention to it. One of the interesting storylines about this attack on Pearl Harbor is that they, there was a possibility they could have taken action to defend Pearl Harbor. In fact, the 1930s, Maybe a decade before, maybe five years before, several years before the attack on Pearl Harbor, U.S. intelligence had cracked the Japanese diplomatic code. So the, the Japanese were sending this code to the, the diplomats here in America, and, and America was intercepting what they were saying and knew every day what communication was saying. And to protect the secrecy of these things, they, they, they just had a few people who knew even that they had broken the code. And they provided intelligence to a very short list of people, including the President of the United States. Listen, but with all the things that were on FDR's mind at that time, because the budding war in Asia and that, there were times they found this uh, piece of intelligence in the garbage can. FDR's garbage can was. And they said, we don't want anyone finding that intelligence. And so they cut off this communication to the President for a season. They didn't want anyone to find out that they'd cracked the code. Now, I do think that FDR was getting this instruction, but there's so many other things that weren't paying attention to what was going on. But listen to what the Japanese told him. 
told the, the, the Jap, Japanese told the ambassadors here in America, the Japanese ambassador to the United States was instructed <clears throat> that all negotiations with America had to end by November 29th. It's got to end by November 29th. It's like, okay, maybe, maybe something big's going on here if I've got to stop by November 29th. Because, quote, things are automatically going to happen. The United States knew that. So they suspected something was up, and they knew something was up, but maybe they could have been on high alert. Something's going to happen. But few thought the Japanese could have come to Pearl Harbor that far away and launch a large-scale attack. But then, you know, they had another chance. On the morning of the attack, the radar installations had picked up this blip of airplanes. Blip, 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 blip. An hour before the attack, they saw these planes coming on the horizon and the radar. But Pearl Harbor was expecting some bombers from the west coast to come, so the warning signs were ignored. Ah, those are the bombers coming. And then, blip, blip, starts turning to blip, 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 blip. And they saw all these planes coming, and uh, by that time it was too late. You know, it wasn't only the Americans that ignored the warnings either. Before the bombs were dropped on Hiroshima, at least, uh, the Americans dropped scores and scores of pamphlets telling them what's going to happen. Evacuate the city. This is going to get destroyed, you know. Big bombing's going to come. I'm not sure what that was, but there were many in Hiroshima, 100,000, who didn't evacuate, didn't believe, didn't heed to the warnings, and you know what happened to some of them. Vaporized in an instant, right? Listen, I'm telling you, there are parallels with, with Pearl Harbor and us today as well. We have warnings. Our intelligence is far greater than the United States ever obtained from Japan. They obtained some cryptic, perhaps, notice of things. But we know the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ is coming, and it's going to come with power. Listen, we're in Nagasaki, Hiroshima. The, the atomic bomb is coming. We know that. Now, it may not come in our lifetime. It might. We, we don't know. But sadly, few would pay attention to that warning. Will you pay attention to the intelligence we have? The Bible is our faithful, reliable guide. Jesus will come in power and authority, and you do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Picture with me a dark room, okay? A, a dark room where there's nothing around, and then there's a shining light in that dark room. What are you going to look at in that dark room? You can look at the light, right? Uh, think about this. You're out, you're out camping some night. You're out there in the forest and uh, you light a fire and the sun goes down. What do you look at at night? The fire. You're just you know, warming yourself by the fire. You're looking at it. And, and there's something about fire. We can look at the fire for hours and get filled with all this smoke smell and all those kind of things. We can look at it for hours, just the, the flickering and light, because there's nothing else to look at. We don't, we don't stand there by the fire and kind of look off in the woods and say, hey, wow, that's really interesting over there, isn't it? Wow, look, look, at that, look at that tree. You can't see it, but look at that. Isn't that interesting? No, we look at this fire that is flickering, this lamp shining in a, in a dark place. And too often, we're enamored by the darkness. Darkness is all around us in this world, and we're often enamored by the darkness. And Peter says, look at the light. Are you looking at the light? Do you find this I read earlier in Psalm 19? More precious than gold, more desirable than honey. That's the end of what he's talking about here. Yes, our, our, our faith is grounded in history. And the Bible tells us all about that history. Let's heed the warnings. Let's look into it. And how long do we look there? 
It's a day when the morning star will arise in our hearts. Morning star, that phrase there is talking about Jesus. Arising in the heart, casting away the darkness. We're in this dark world. There's a day Christ will come, somehow arise in our hearts, cast away the darkness. We need to be looking at the light. We have a firm faith. So let's trust in Him. Let's pray. Lord, today is a a day of remembrance of Pearl Harbor. It is also a, a day of remembrance for us. We think once again of what your Scriptures declare of the cross of Christ. It happened in history. How prone we are to forget it. How prone we are to wonder. How prone we are to let a a week go by and think very little about it. And I pray, Lord, that You would show us the value of our intelligence we have. The value of the light. The value of the morning star which will arise in our hearts. Which is more valuable than an eyewitness account. So, Lord, I pray that You would give us a heart and a reason and a passion to look to the light. Help us, Lord, whatever it takes. I know some testimony of some men is that the, uh, the memorization of Scripture has helped focus them on the light and has helped turn them from darkness. I know that often listening to your light, we can even do that, but listening to your Word turns us away from the darkness, gives a desire. So I pray, Lord, that you, you would cause us to do that, to realize that we have a firm faith that we will stand before you someday, that you will destroy this earth someday. I pray that you'd, you'd help. And I would pray that that would be a community project, that we would encourage one another day after day as long as it's still called today, that we wouldn't forsake our own assembling, but we would consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds when people are drifting to, to call them and help them and, and encourage them back to do what we can do to point people to the light. So I even would pray that would happen at, at Potluck here just right after our service this morning. I pray that you would bless our time together, that we would enjoy our fellowship with one another. Lord, that you would bless the food and the energy we gain by this food to so live for your glory and so live for the light that's within us. Thank you for Peter and how, how relevant his message is for us today. Help us to apply these things in our lives. Christ's name. Amen. All right, with that, you are dismissed. Have a great day.